Welcome to Rocking Your Prayers. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, across much of the world, men and women think alike. However, in countries that are economically developed and culturally liberal, young men and women are polarizing, as chronicled by John Byrne Modoc. Over at the Financial Times, young women are increasingly likely to identify as progressives and vote for leftists, while young men remain more conservative. What explains this global heterogeneity? Let me suggest. Men and women tend to think alike in countries where there is close-knit interdependence, religiosity, and authoritarianism. Or... If there is shared cultural production and mixed gendered offline socialising. Now, gendered ideological polarisation appears encouraged by several factors like a feminised public culture, economic resentment, social media filter bubbles, and cultural entrepreneurs. I'm going to discuss lots of countries from around the world to illustrate these themes. So, first, let's think about what suppresses a gender divide. In poorer countries, people lack the security of salaries and social insurance. Perched on a cliff edge of precarity, they're ever vulnerable to negative shocks from ill health, injury, job loss and climate breakdown. When nepotism is rife and rule of law is weak, it's imperative to have allies. Distrusting outsiders, many prefer to do business with kin. Families stick together, not just in terms of commerce and cooperation, but also leisure and socialising. If children are socialised to put family first and then remain reliant on close-knit kin, beholden to uniform social policing, there's little scope for polarisation. Deviance is sternly punished since people believe it is either morally improper or risks social censure. So let me give you some examples from Morocco, India, Turkey and Canada. Okay, Morocco. So during Ramadan, my friend and I were shopping for iftar, the feast eaten after sunset. Walking through the crowded Medina, all the dates looked the same. I wondered why we were trekking so far. Layla explained, we buy from our cousin because they're trustworthy. Strong family bonds were crucial, especially when her father had struggled economically. But they also created restrictions. Layla confided in me that she had previously loved women but cut off contact because it's against the religion. When she started dressing like a tomboy, her father was furious. In socially conservative fairs, there are strong penalties for being openly gay. Only when she migrated alone for work in Dubai could she finally embrace her desires. On Instagram, she now uh, posts butch selfies. Another friend, Salma, was part of a secret atheist group on Facebook and drag water on our hike to Borsud during Ramadan. But that was all done covertly. Both women publicly conformed for fear of social disapproval enforced by their parents. Okay, now let's talk about India. Thanks to economic growth, millions of Indian women have become educated, curious and proud of their achievements. But their aspirations are often curtailed. India is caught in what I call the patrilocal trap. Since caste networks are paramount and ostracism is enormously costly, the daughters are socialised to marry, please their in-laws and stay put. Privately, many Indian women desperately seek a loving, respectful husband, like Shah Rukh Khan. Shrayana Bhattacharya, in her 
pub, desperately seeking Sharab, explains this brilliantly. And I quote, Most of us are expected to couple up early, so you smile and suffer through the mountain indignities. A man with multiple failed businesses laughs at his date's successful ventures. Dating in Delhi feels like an incessant confrontation with one's worst insecurities. One Indian woman is quoted as saying, Mayada, I hope I say that correctly, means self-discipline. Never express desire. Never buy things for yourself. Shahrukh Khan is enormously popular, argues Bhattacharya, because he embodies a masculinity that many Indian women desperately crave, yet struggle to find. As women remark, and I quote, We'd never seen a man talk to women with such respect and love. Never seen a man pay this kind of attention to a woman. In real life, there's no shahrukh. All men are like salmon. Women have to fight with tradition and have to accept losing the fight. Just like Morocco, close-knit kinship and social policing reinforced conformity, preventing women from bucking out. Now, over to Turkey. In Konya, I spent a week with a very pious family. Her father had a splendid library of religious books and she was heavily veiled. Together we interviewed their imam and the leading Sufi sheikh. Everyone was reading the same Quran, respecting the same scholars. There was no debate over scripture, no difference of opinion. One day we went to a lunch gathering. Zecha had recently married into the family and was now spending every day with her mother's-in-law. She had no independent work or social life. She spent all day with housewives in their 50s. Three months into marriage, Zara was bored and unhappy. But she wasn't resisting. That was life. Okay, so if everyone relies heavily on reciprocity, ostracism, and ostracism is enormously costly, no one wants to seem weird. Families socialize their children to respect their elders and put family first. Children internalize their responsibility to preserve their family's reputation. Authoritarianism exerts further force, crushing any spirit of resistance, as I saw in Uzbekistan. Religiosity matters too. If everyone fears hell and defers to imams, there's little dissent. And if close-knit communities all appear deeply religious, sacrosanct teachings may go unquestioned. Social media won't necessarily make women woke. Back in Toronto, I had lunch with a brilliant 26-year-old woman, a veiled Pakistani immigrant. Happily married and living with her in-laws, she detailed how her sisters-in-law are closely policed. Brothers call them up to check their whereabouts and ask for video verification. Her female friends have been pressured to, mar pressured to marry Pakistani men, sometimes their cousins. Men's honour still depends on female propriety. Despite these strictures, there's very little feminist resistance on Canadian-Pakistani TikTok. Close-knit interdependence, religiosity and authoritarianism are not the only forces that breed ideological conformity. In the West, I'd credit uniform cultural production and mixed-gendered socialising. So now, if I may, I'd like to tell you a little bit about my teenage years. I think these were quite typical for a middle-class Western millennial. I was born in 1986. I grew up in a commuter town in the Kentish countryside. We didn't have smartphones, online games or personalised entertainment. 
our television had four channels. After 6pm, it was a choice of BBC News or The Simpsons. The whole family read the single same newspaper. There was little prospect of polarisation. My social circle comprised both male and female friends. Over the holidays, they came to play Nintendo. Mario Kart was a non-network game, much more enjoyable with friends. Cross-legged on the carpet, we raced as Toad, Diddy Kanye and Peach Princess. When we were too young for pubs, I hosted garage parties. I swept the concrete floor, arranged the white plastic chairs, and then others shared beers and cigarettes. It wasn't classy, but it was always great fun. In the early 2000s, Sony, Microsoft and Nintendo brought out online games, but they were rather expensive. So instead, my school friends and I studied and socialised together, all in the same echo chamber with no gender divide. Now I want to talk about friendships between men and women, because everyone has their own personal struggles. Unaware of another person's trials and tribulations, we may think they have it easier. Through my research, I've learned how empathy can be cultivated by mixed-gender friendships. So, in Catalonia today, feminism is a common topic of conversation. Young women are publicly criticising inequalities. Some are also educating their male friends. Santiago, who's just finished school, shared examples of his friends resisting machismo. i give you three examples. So, after being jilted, one guy said that women are whores, puta. And she said, no, a woman may decide who she wishes to go out with. It's another case. Guys can get rowdy, especially when drinking and watching football. Santiago's female friends complained. They wanted to leave. He learned that aggression made them uncomfortable. And thereafter, he was much more sensitive. Now, kissing on the cheek is a traditional Spanish greeting. But Santiago's female friends actually find this too intrusive. They prefer to shake hands with strangers. By speaking out and supporting each other, young Catalonians are creating a public sphere in which women feel more comfortable. Seeing their discomfort and defiance keen to preserve their friendships, Santiago listens and learns. He actually feels more comfortable with women since they don't pressure him to be macho. And that's entirely consistent with a large volume of research corroborating Gordon Alport's contact hypothesis. When people collaborate in joint projects, they tend to forge solidaristic ties and reject discrimination. So, to summarise thus far, the gender divide can be suppressed by two forces. Close-knit interdependence, social policing, religious animosity, religiosity and authoritarianism, or the shared cultural production, Simpsons and BBC News, as well as offline friendships. Now, what fosters a gender divide? Well, gendered ideological polarisation seems to be encouraged by four conditions. Economic resentment, social media filter bubbles, cultural entrepreneurs and cultural liberalisation, encouraging people to speak out. So I want to talk about South Korea, China and then North America and Europe. So let us suppose that you're a 30-year-old guy in South Korea. You're working ultra-long hours, returning home late but still low in the company hierarchy, bossed about by demanding superiors. At work, women are servile underlings expected to pour the tea and act like secretaries. But romantically, women won't give you a chance. Dating is a nightmare given male-heavy sex ratios and your middling paycheck. It's a recipe for frustration. 
rationally, you could invest in self-improvement, hit the gym and try to be more charming. But there's also a supportive fraternal community saying something along the lines of, and I'm making this up, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the kind of thing you get in the South Korean manosphere. It's not your fault. Women are greedy, grasping, hypergamous kimchi bitches. They have a vastly easier time. They're exempt from conscription with no pressure to provide for their families. They can easily marry rich. Now, here's a video I made of some whore undressing in a public loo. Her name's Hwai Yang and she's employed at Hyundai. Uh, then another guy will say, ha ha, great footage, brother. Magnificent shots. This is the sort of thing you get. Now, as long as Korean men continue to dominate management and socialize with other men, they're immersed in cultures of self-righteous sexism. 80% of men in their 20s believe there is serious gender discrimination against men. It's difficult to see what would unseat this antipathy. South Korean women, meanwhile, are increasingly feminist. Inspired and emboldened, they have shared stories of abuse and publicly supported each other. Together they chorus, not your fault. This is all causing South Korea's growing gender divide. Now let's talk about China. China's rapid economic growth, urbanization, university enrollment and rise of salaried employment has spawned cultural liberalization. By migrating for study and work, young adults have become far more independent and free to form their own friendships. Gathering together, women make friends, bemoan unfairness and discover more egalitarian alternatives. Emboldened by peers and feminist media, they come to expect and demand better. Chinese men typically hang out with other men, few have sisters, given ultra-low fertility, so they do not necessarily learn about women's concerns and frustrations. Social media is also rather sex-segregated. By Dotibar is mostly male, while Little Red Book skews female. Separately, they manufacture diverse perceptions. Patriarchal entitlements are all cheered by all the men in the room. So if a culturally homogenous group applauds a singular perspective, it appears entirely legitimate. Now, what might disrupt that group thing? Well, caring relationships do seem to build bridges, as Chen explained. And I quote... I used to be like one of those guys on the app by Dirty Bam. I sent the jokes to my girlfriend, calling fat girls names of tanks. She said, uh, I'm uncomfortable with what you're saying. Um, then a, a girl was dating many men. I called her a bitch. My girlfriend was very angry. I was unaware. These are very serious issues. <laughs> so Jin helped Jane become more empathetic by sharing her feminist perspective. Concerned for her good opinion, he listened. Social media clearly does not inhibit empathetic mixed-gendered friendships, but those immersed in sort of homophilic filter bubbles may get trapped in ideological polarisation. Okay, now here's a big question. What's driving the West gender divide? So in the West, young men and women are ideologically diverging because women have become more progressive, while young men remain more conservative. Now, does this reflect a feminized, feminized public culture, economic resentment, social media filter bubbles, cultural entrepreneurs like Andrew Tate? Let's go through each of these. So let's think about the feminized public culture. In the late 20th century, a female echo chamber was already emerging. As Western women forged careers as journalists, authors, scriptwriters and publishers, they told their own stories, which resonated with other women. As early as 1997, most of the editorial and sales executives at Time Warner were women. 
By 2000, women held 50% of US book copyrights. By 2020, they authored the majority of new books. Their readers were often female. Female publishing and readership plausibly encouraged a feminized ideology. But it fails to explain why young American men hold more conservative views on gender than older men. Okay, now let's think about economic resentment. A wealth of research suggests that economic stagnation fuels sexist resentment, xenophobia, far-right voting, and zero-sum mentalities. But is it just about economics? So a new paper by Off, uh, Sharon, and Alexander examines modern sexism across the European Union. Young men are more likely to endorse the following. And I quote, Advancing women and girls' rights has gone too far because it threatens men's and boys' opportunities. They find that resentment is strongest among men who think that state institutions in their region are unfair and live in regions with rising unemployment and acute job competition. Of Sharon and Alexander's analysis indicates that, indicates that when men struggle to get ahead, when they're unable to achieve status, when they think public institutions are unfair, they're more likely to resent women's gains. Brits born into areas with high unemployment are similarly more likely to say husbands should earn and wives should stay at home. Economic frustration is also associated with support for the far right, as shown by Rodriguez Posse, Terreiro de Villa and Lee. Right-wing vote share is strongest in European places with high immigration and economic decline. Xenophobia and sexist resentment both reflect men's unmet desire for status. A fundamental feature of patriarchy is that men want to have high status. When men feel like they're falling behind, unable to gain preeminence, forever ghosted by women on dating apps, they may react aggressively and endorse hostile sexism. That's a global trend, which I discussed before. Now let me talk about zero-sum mentalities. So there's a new paper by Sahel Chinoy, Nathan Nunn, um, Sandra Sequira and Stephanie Stancheva. And it examines beliefs that the world is zero-sum. Your success is my loss. If people believe that prizes are scarce, then one person's victory comes at another person's expense. Zero-sum thinking holds on both the left and the right. It is associated with support for redistribution, awareness of racial and gender discrimination, as well as being anti-immigrant. Zero-sum beliefs are strongly associated with economic immobility. If individuals and their families have not experienced intergenerational upwards mobility, they tend to say that opportunities are scarce and fixed. Under a zero-sum mentality, resentful hostility makes sense. Economic stagnation and intense competition foster jealousy. So now you might be wondering, well, why are sexist resentment and xenophobia strongest among young men? Why are the cultural effects skewed by age? In the UK and Germany, young men are more likely to resist immigration. In previous work, John Byrne Murdoch used the World Value Survey data on zero-sum mentalities to tell an important story. Globally, people who experienced high economic growth in their youth are much more likely to believe that everyone can thrive. Deceleration of economic growth, by contrast, has bred zero-sum mentalities. So the message is clear. People who've personally seen and experienced upward mobility are more likely to believe that everyone can thrive. And that's consistent with Gethin et al.'s finding 
and that highly educated people tend to vote for left-wing and democratic parties. Rich and successful men are doing great. Their status is secure and they're happy to share the pie. So no one needs to play their tiny violin for those guys earning 200k. Okay, now let's talk about social media filter bubbles. Economic frustrations have clearly fueled status insecurity and resentment. But as Chinoy and co-authors show, zero-sum mentalities have no set direction. They may lean left or right. So economics alone cannot explain why young men are choosing to be more conservative. The big structural shift that coincides with the gender divide is technology. Any teen with a smartphone can play online games, watch comedy, browse social media or listen to podcasts. Whatever appeals, there's unlimited amusement. Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and Instagram have been carefully designed to keep users hooked. Algorithms elevate sensational, radicalizing articles. They also create filter bubbles, a term coined by Eli Pariser, by feeding people stories that appeal to their priors. This reinforces righteous resistance and groupthink. Now, corporate quests for advertising revenue create social networks that augment extremism, argue Asimov and Johnson. Corporate algorithms are a kind of institution. They set the rules of the digital game. Asimoglu and Johnson don't actually use that terminology, but to me it seems consistent with their theory. Algorithms are a kind of institution. Now, who pays for dates is currently trending on the Western manosphere. Collectively, men bemoan unfairness. You know, they say something like, if women want equality, they can share the tab. I hear this same issue repeated by many, many 20-something men. Now, as a cold-hearted rational empiricist, my internal monologue is something along the lines of, you know, this is just a personal preference. Some people enjoy traditional gender roles, like some men enjoy sexual dominance and financially providing for their girlfriends. Those people can sort and select in the dating market. Like, I don't see that as a big inequality, it's just a personal preference and they can find other like-minded people. But... On male-dominated filter bubbles, this is hyped into another instance of sexist discrimination where yet again men are disadvantaged. Cultural echo chambers thus legitimise anti-female resentment far beyond economics. Likewise for progressive women, filter bubbles may be exacerbating zero-sum mentalities, reinforcing beliefs that the world is deeply unfair. Now let's talk about cultural entrepreneurs. Because filter bubbles don't have an inevitable ideology. Separately, they rally against authoritarianism, corruption, immigration and racism. Charismatic entrepreneurs can capitalise on new technologies by building echo chambers that construct the legitimate targets for animosity, shaming and vilification. So Andrew Tate gains notoriety on social media for espousing sexism. A third of young British men now rate him favourably. As a multi-millionaire businessman partying with attractive women in private yet in private jets and super yachts, uh, he embodies many men's idea of success. His wealth, his confidence, and his charisma all aid ideological persuasion. But he's not just an exogenous shock, single-handedly brainwashing innocent young men. Rather, he's surfing a wave. Economically of, of economic frustration, turbocharged by corporate algorithms that fire up sensationalist content for clicks. Okay, let me summarize. 
close-knit, interdependent religious and authoritarian societies breed cultural conformity, since everyone is socially policed. Older men in the West uh, tend to think alike with older women, though for different reasons. They came of age at a time of shared cultural production and mixed-gendered socialising. But now, in economically developed and culturally liberal societies, young men and women seem to be growing apart. Evidence points to economic frustrations, social media filter bubbles and cultural entrepreneurs. In economically stagnant regions, young men are struggling to achieve high status. Social media filter bubbles and cultural entrepreneurs have created echo chambers of righteous resentment, channeling frustrations and zero-sum mentalities against females and foreigners. Now, what might reverse the growing gap? Well, the available evidence points to three things. Economic prosperity, breaking those filter bubbles, regulating algorithms and cross-gendered friendships. Failure to address that gap may impede heterosexual love, friendships and family formation. I am Dr Alice Evans and this is Rocking Our Pride. Now, on Monday or maybe Tuesday, I'm going to Hong Kong um, for research Uh, So if you're in Hong Kong and you'd like to say hello, please do. I'd love to meet you. Then in February, I'm going to New York to give a talk at Barnard. So if you're in New York, say hello. I'm there for a week. Then I hop to DC to spend time with my friends at the bank. And then I come to Stanford in Palo Alto for three months to be a visiting fellow at Stanford. And I'm really looking forward to seeing everyone there. So if you're on my travels in Hong Kong, New York, DC or California and you'd like to say hello um or play Mario Kart (laughs) um just drop me a line okay take care and I hope you're all well bye